Welcome to the Scoop and School podcast. Do they worry you a little? Are you worried? Ridiculous, Morgan. Bye bye. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Your host, Stephen Kahn. What's happening, everybody? Welcome to week four of the college football season. I apologize. I apologize if my voice sounds a little off or if it starts to go during the podcast. I'm sort of getting sick here. Obviously, not great timing. You may remember I was also sick recording the podcast leading into last year's Notre Dame Michigan game, but uh, doing everything I can to get myself right before heading down to Georgia. I've got a a glass of emergency here sitting next to me probably going to sleep uh, pretty much right after I record this thing. So got to be uh, got to bring my A1 game uh, into Athens if we want any chance of beating Georgia. Given that this is Notre Dame's third game of the season, and it's the first that I'm attending, this is the longest it has taken me to get to a Notre Dame game in person since 2007, which I am happy to say in 2007 I went to zero Notre Dame games that year. Um, so this is, it's, it's been, uh, it's been a long wait for me and, uh, I'm really excited to going down there. Got a good group of guys and, uh, and should be a really fun time. But before we get to that and some other, uh, great matchups coming up in week four, let's take a look back at what was week three. And, uh, there were several, uh, you know, we, we talked about it last week. There was no... No matchup between ranked teams, and and none of the no huge upsets came to fruition. But there certainly were some meaningful outcomes that I think uh, we can take with us uh, throughout the rest of the season. Maybe the most notable outcome, uh, not necessarily in result, but just uh, what happened uh, with with some of the players there, was Florida twenty nine, Kentucky twenty one. Florida did rally to win this game. Uh, there was a time where it looked like they were likely uh, to lose. Uh, certainly looked that way when Felipe Franks went down with an injury. Uh, as it turns out, he is expected to be out for the year for Florida. Kyle Trask uh, replaced him. They might run a, a two-quarterback system going forward with one more of a runner and one more of a passer. Florida does escape Kentucky with the win, but I just think uh, given how they've looked to start the season and now that they're going to be playing without Felipe Franks the rest of the way, I just don't see them uh, having any chance to compete with Georgia in the SEC East or, you know, anyone else on, on the West side uh, in the SEC. So probably uh, ceiling on the on the Florida season, I would, you know, maybe nine and three is the best they're going to do. Uh, certainly not looking good for the Gators at this point. Uh, another team that was able, uh, a, bit, a favorite that was able to get the win, but maybe didn't look so great doing it was Penn State. Uh, hosting Pittsburgh, they won 17 to 10. I, I should note the Penn State defense looked great, but it's hard to really know how much of that was Penn State and how much of that was a Pat Narduzzi-led uh, offense for Pitt. It's just, uh, I mean, I know he's not running the show on offense, and they've got Mark Whipple in there now, but just his his philosophy on coaching a game. Uh, for those who didn't see it, Pitt down by seven points. And with, mind you, only 10 points throughout the entire game, so it's not like they're just scoring at will, uh, gets the ball to first and goal at the one. Uh, they throw a couple passes, which first and goal at the one, just do four QB sneaks. Eventually, you're going to get into the end zone, especially now that you're able to push uh, the quarterback from behind with, with one of the uh, upbacks. 
but they throw a couple passes in there. On fourth down, they decide to kick a field goal from the one-yard line. They miss. Even if they made it, it didn't matter. They they were unable to score again. And Pat or Doozy, if you're listening to this podcast, you've you've probably heard it at this point. But his rationale was that they were going to need two scores to win the game anyway, so might as well kick the field goal. Uh, I, I hope also that if you're listening to this podcast, you're smart enough to realize that statement doesn't make any sense. So uh, I'll, I'll leave that there for now. But Penn State survives a scare from Pitt. Uh, certainly not a rivalry game. They will make sure you know that. Uh, the defense looked good. The offense, not so much. Sean Clifford, uh, he, he, he talked a big game, so there would be no drop-off from Trace McSorley. I just... Uh, I don't see a scenario where Trace McSorley was only going to put 17 points on this Pitt team. So we will have to see where Penn State goes from here. Certainly looks like a strong defense, maybe not so much on the offensive side of the ball. Sticking uh, with with a Big Ten team uh, and a Big Ten home favorite, last week I told you Michigan State-Arizona State was going to get weird, and weird it got. Um... Arizona State down 7-3 late in the game. Freshman quarterback Jaden Daniels for Arizona State just decided, hey, I'm going to treat this uh, like a video game. I'm going to drop back and I'm just going to run. Uh, it's it's certainly a strategy that has worked in NCAA 09 for many years. He would just uh, drop back, let his receivers take the defensive backs out of the play, and then he would just outrun a linebacker to get first down after first down. Ultimately, he scores a touchdown to take a 10-7 lead. And then Michigan State, who had already missed two field goals earlier in the game, lines up for a game-tying field goal. They make it. Unfortunately, they had 12 players on the field. And in football, you're only allowed to have 11 players on the field. They were forced to try the field goal again from five yards back. This one didn't even come close. And that's how Michigan State ended up with a 10-7 loss to Arizona State. At home, it looks like the more things change, the more things stay the same for Mark D'Antonio and that Michigan State offense. He shuffled all his uh, coaches around on the offensive side of the ball, giving them all different assignments and different position groups to coach, and uh, no real changes. As third-year quarterback Brian Lewerke not making the strides one might have expected, uh, and plain and simply, you got to put up more than seven points at home in a game like that. Um, the battle for the Cyhawk Trophy, Iowa outlasts Iowa State 18-17 in a game that featured two weather delays. Uh, Iowa State going to look back at this one and, and really, you know, they're, they're going to be crushed that they missed a chance to take down their rival, uh, getting the ball back with just uh, a few minutes to go and a chance to win the game. Their, uh, their gunner blocker runs into the return man. Uh, results in a muffed punt and, and an Iowa takeover that sealed the game there. But the one-point loss was good enough to cover the uh, the two-and-a-half-point uh, spread for Iowa State that I gave out. I went two out of three this week, the other winner being Oklahoma blowing out UCLA. We might make a habit of betting against UCLA. We'll get to that in a little bit. And in another uh, in another big game, USC fell to BYU. That was my uh, that was my only loss of the week. Uh, lost thirty to twenty seven in overtime. Really, uh, a pretty well played game. Both teams uh, both teams really showed something. Game ended on an interception in overtime, thrown by Keaton Slovis. And I thought replay 
showed pretty convincing evidence that that ball touched the ground and fell incomplete, but uh, the the replay officials upheld the call, and thus USC is 2-1, and one, heading into a really tough stretch coming up, playing Utah, Washington, and Notre Dame over their next three games. Going to be a tough test for USC and a tough test for Clay Helton, as we knew just one loss would, would warm up the seat for him, and that's exactly what's happened after the loss in Provo to the Cougars. Uh, Temple went to Maryland, or excuse me, Temple hosted Maryland, and won 20-17. Coming into this game, Maryland averaging 71 points per game. Uh, Temple really limited them. Josh Jackson was struggling big time. And you might think, oh, 2017, that's a normal football score. Well, four of those points for Maryland came off two safeties, one in the first quarter, one in the fourth quarter. And in those quarters, their only points were those safeties. I really, it's fun to look at the little line score that shows the quarter-by-quarter scoring breakdown and to see not one but two twos listed as the quarter scores for Maryland. Um, So maybe that uh, we can pump the brakes a little bit on that uh, sleeper in the Big East uh, being Maryland. They did not uh, they did not look strong against the Owls. Um, and then finally, uh, in terms of games that meant something, Virginia continues their undefeated start, beating Florida State 31-24. to uh, Florida State led this game 14-10 to at half. And as Virginia scored 21 points in the fourth quarter to win this game, uh, a fourth quarter that featured four personal foul penalties against Florida State. And this this perpetuates a, a trend so far this year, with Florida State, particularly their defense, completely crumbling in the second half and fourth quarter of football games. Uh, just some numbers for you here. This season, through just three games, in the first half, Florida State is a combined, they're winning in the first half 69-36. to 36. In the second half, they are losing 69-24. to uh, This is a sign of poor coaching. It's a sign of poor conditioning. And it could be a sign of, of players that are, are giving up on their coach. Uh, it's, it's an undisciplined team, as, as noted by all the personal fouls uh, that helped Virginia. Uh, you know, Virginia was having a hard time moving the ball in this game. Only 10 points through three quarters. But if you're getting all these personal foul penalties that are going to keep drives alive... That is going to help a team put three touchdowns on you in the fourth quarter to beat you. Wow. You know, for, for all those reasons I just mentioned, I just don't see Willie Taggart uh, coaching the Florida State Seminoles in 2020. I predicted 5-7 and seven before the year started. I'm going to stick with that 5-7 and seven prediction. And it might be harsh coming off uh, just two years, but given the way this team is playing and the way they quit in the fourth quarter, I think that this will be the end of Willie Taggart's tenure in Florida State. Uh, and just the complete opposite of Florida State is a team like Minnesota. Uh, they are now 3-1 and one and have trailed in the fourth quarter of every game they've played. Not just that, they've trailed in the final six minutes of every game they've played and have gotten a 3-0. and Not not to say that Minnesota's a great team. They've played pretty bad teams. Um, but certainly uh, good resilience for them to be 3-0. and And there's a chance they go to Purdue, host Illinois and Nebraska, then go to Rutgers and host Maryland. I'm not saying it's likely, but there is a chance we are looking at just about the most fraudulent 8-0 team 
uh, we, we have seen in college football in quite some time. Would look a lot like actually that USF team two years ago that started 7-0 and and then went on to lose however however many games. In our, or, excuse me, that was the USF team just last year. 7-0 uh, lost their final six games and their first two games this year uh, to go on an eight-game losing streak after starting 7-0. Could be a similar situation there. Uh, that's about it for week three. So before we transition to week four, I mentioned I'm going down to Athens, going with a, with a group of friends, big group. We have 10 people. And where are 10 people going to stay together? You're not going to go to a hotel and all break up into different rooms. So what we did is we went to rentlikeachampion.com. We found a great house that's going to accommodate all of us. We're going to have a great time. Uh, you can use promo code SCOOP. You may or may not get $25 off doing that. You should go to rentlikeachampion.com because it's a great place to find a house to rent in college towns for college football weekends with your friends. If you use rentlikeachampion.com, you're going to have a lot of friends and you're going to have a great time and it's just going to be great. So go ahead and use rentlikeachampion.com promo code SCOOP. Alrighty. Week four is upon us, and it starts It starts on Friday night. Well, I mean, the weekend, I truly, it starts Thursday. But Friday night, we've got some good games, and we've got number 10 Utah visiting unranked, recently unranked, USC. This is a major battle here in the Pac-12 South, and it's we knew that this was a tough six-game opening stretch for USC. I don't think all is lost because of their loss uh, at BYU. If they can uh, find a way to beat this really strong Utah team at home, they're going to be in great position in the Pac-12 South. Uh, they'd be 2-0 in conference and have a win against probably uh, their, their biggest competition in the South Division and would be heading, in, heading into Washington next week looking to capitalize on a big win. So this is just because uh, just because USC lost this last game, still a big game for them. That being said, I think Utah is just too tough in the trenches. That is USC's weakness at this point. They're going to have to be really quick hitters, uh, get the ball out quickly. Otherwise, Keaton Slovis is going to be under pressure all night. Should be a good game. I do give the slight edge to Utah in that one. Then starting at noon on Saturday, uh, one of the bigger games of the day and one of the bigger games of this young season, number 11 travels to Madison to take on number 13, Wisconsin. Uh, word out of Ann Arbor is that starting left tackle John Runyon Jr. is going to be back for Michigan. Um, and this is a matchup that it's we're going to learn a lot about both teams. Uh, Wisconsin has looked excellent, uh, not against great competition. Michigan has looked not so good, also not against great competition, but, uh, you know, at least Army, uh, you know, non-traditional style of football, so how much do we really learn about a team from a game like that? I just, when I look at these two teams, Michigan needs to force Jack Cohn to beat them. They need to, with their front seven, limit Jonathan Taylor. And if they force Jack Cohn to beat them, I think they've got the secondary... Uh, and, and I think Wisconsin really doesn't have the playmakers on the outside to make Michigan pay there. I like Michigan's ceiling a little bit more, more playmakers outside. Uh, and, and I think the, um, if, if it turns into 
something of a shootout, or if one team, you know, needs to go into, say, a four-minute offense and get a score late. I have more faith in Michigan and their weapons to do that than I do Wisconsin. It's the kind of game, if I think if Wisconsin falls behind, they're in a lot of trouble, whereas they're going to, you know, the, the game script for, for Wisconsin to win is kind of maintain that seven-point lead all the way through. But uh, I do just like Michigan's ceiling a little bit more. Uh, I like that the fact that this game is at noon for Wisconsin might be late into the second quarter before the students even even fill that stadium for the Badgers. So with all that being said, uh, I think Michigan's tired of hearing how crappy they looked uh, against Army for uh, the last two weeks after they had this week off. I think they go to Madison and get the upset win at Wisconsin. And for that reason, one of my three picks this week is Michigan plus three points. Um, also, I'll just give you my other two picks now. I like UCF uh, giving 13 at Pittsburgh, and I should say some of these lines may have moved as I gave these out on Monday. Um, but UCF laying 13, this actually, uh, this is probably a stupid thing to say right after giving the prediction. This sort of seems like a trap where Pitt hasn't looked great and UCF just looks like complete world beaters. Uh, they just crushed Stanford at home. Although, as I've said on this podcast many times, I really think uh, Stanford is in for probably a, a very tough year here. So maybe not even worth making a lot of, of that uh, big win against Stanford. But they, UCF kept their 30-plus uh, point streak going. I see no reason uh, that it will end at Pittsburgh. And I don't see any path uh, for Pitt to get to 20. So if you're looking at like 30 to 17, you've got yourself a push. I'll take my chances there and uh, and see, see UCF winning this game something like 35-14 and covering the spread there. And lastly, we're just going to keep rolling uh, against UCLA. Washington State giving them 18.5 points at home. Uh, I think... We've seen uh, the UCLA offense capped, uh, even against a not-great defense like Washington State. I don't see them scoring more than about three touchdowns, and Washington State should have no problem getting to 42 in this one. Let's call it 42-21 Washington State. They cover by a field goal. Those are the three picks. One more time, Michigan plus three, UCF minus 13, Washington State minus 18 and a half. Uh, another big game, uh Saturday afternoon, 3.30, number 8 Auburn goes to number 17 Texas A&M. This is going to be a tough environment for true freshman quarterback Bo Nix. He certainly looked good uh, opening week uh, against Oregon, getting that uh, final drive touchdown when he needed it to win the game. This is going to be an entirely different situation, going to Kyle Field with the 12th man on hand, making a lot of noise. Um... I think he's going to struggle in this road environment. And then you look on the other side for Texas A&M. This is their fifth hardest game of the season, uh, playing number eight. Um, They've already played number one in Clemson. Later this season, they play Alabama, Georgia, and LSU, your current numbers two, three, and four in the polls. This is not... uh, this. This is the kind of game Texas A&M needs to win if they want to do better than like seven and five this season. So I expect them to be ready to play. Uh, It's not a look-ahead spot for them with Arkansas coming up next week. So it's not like this is the beginning of that really difficult gauntlet. Uh, This one kind of stands alone, you know, a week separated from Clemson and a week separated 
from Alabama on the other side. I think they come in with a good mindset. Kellen Mond uh, leads the Aggies, and they win outright in this one, uh, taking out number eight, Auburn. Um, one might be worth keeping an eye on, Washington going to BYU. Um, you know, Washington took that unexpected loss to Cal a couple weeks ago. BYU uh, is is an unexpected 2-1 and one with their only loss coming to Utah. You know, if, if Washington uh, loses this game, this they could be in for a long season. Uh, a team that had playoff aspirations when the season started all of a sudden could be looking down the barrel of like an 8-4, and 7-5 and five type year. Uh, and something that Chris Peterson would have to reevaluate what's going on there. So whether or not Jacob Eason can bounce back on the road in Provo, as USC just learned is a tough place to play, uh, that is certainly something to keep an eye on. And if BYU wins, it's going to be quite a 3-1 and start for a team that many could have predicted to start this season 0-4, uh, looking at that schedule to start the year. So certainly uh, two teams and, and kind of a fork in the road who's going to go in the positive direction for the rest of the season, and who's going to go negative. Uh, Oklahoma State goes to Texas. This game's not getting a lot of pub, but this is this is a pretty big one. Uh, Oklahoma State, if you haven't watched them, check out these skill players. They've got Spencer Sanders uh, starting at quarterback. He's probably the best recruit that Mike Gundy has ever brought in there uh, at Oklahoma State. Obviously, they've had some really good quarterback play over the years, but this is the best raw talent uh, that Gundy has had to work with, and he's got uh, he's got a running back, Ch- uh, Cuba Hubbard, awesome name I know, uh, and awesome running back I know, and uh, Tylen Williams out wide, or excuse me, Tylen Wallace. Apologies to Tylen Wallace. Um, they're really good, great quarterback, great running back, great receiver. That is a recipe for success on offense. I certainly expect this to be an absolute shootout with Texas. Um, the problem for Oklahoma State, this is a real step up in competition for them, where Texas already played LSU, uh, came through that game with a loss, but looked, you know, pretty good and mostly unscathed. So I think they, uh, the home crowd for them, and the fact that uh, they've they've already played this level of competition uh, makes the difference there. And Sam Ellinger uh, outduels Spencer Sanders for the win in that one, but I expect that to be a really good game. And I hate to say it, I think that might be the game you want to be watching in the night slate. Because that brings us to 8 o'clock on CBS. Notre Dame goes to Georgia. Here is what I have seen from Notre Dame so far. They have no real running game without Jafar Armstrong. And the offensive line is getting next to no push. I've seen Ian Book continue to look jittery in the pocket, and he's often failing to identify open receivers. Uh, tight end Cole Komet is back, uh, but we don't know, you know, he, he hasn't played yet this season. He's just coming back from a broken collarbone. And we've always heard, we've always heard about how good Cole Komet could be. This is not, you know, I'm not knocking him. I'm just, the it's he's a situation where, like, the idea of him is far outweighs any actual productivity he's ever, you know, put out on the field. So we'll see, you know, we'll see if, if this environment is, is where all of a sudden uh, the light goes on and he steps up. But I don't know, it, people are acting like he's going to be like the savior on offense. I just don't really see that. 
Uh, on the defensive side of the ball, the defensive ends are not getting quite the level of pressure that I was originally anticipating. Uh, linebackers continue to miss run fits. And while the DBs have been great in coverage, they have pretty noticeably been not so good at, at shedding blocks and making tackles. So that's sort of the state of Notre Dame from what I've observed through two games. Here's everything I've heard and read about Georgia, because honestly, aside from a few plays here and there, I have not watched them a ton. I'm told that they have possibly the best offensive line in the country. Uh, I certainly have seen with my own eyes that DeAndre Swift is an absolutely explosive, game-breaking running back. Uh, they have sideline-to-sideline -side speed on defense. And I'm starting to think that I maybe underestimate Jake Fromm. Uh, earlier this season, in talking about Ian Book, I said it was it was Trevor Lawrence and Tua Tagovailoa at the top, and then I thought Ian Book was in that next group with the Jake Fromms of the world. I don't know. Jake Fromm, the more I think about, you know, I watched him most as a freshman, given that that was really uh, the biggest year for Georgia, um, and, and watching him in, like, the national title game against Alabama. He certainly just, throughout the course of his freshman year and then all of his sophomore year, he continues to get better. I don't know. Let's just say I think Jake Fromm is a pretty damn good quarterback. So when you add up the things I've seen from Notre Dame and everything we think we know about Georgia, uh, that seems like a situation where Ian Book is probably going to be very jittery with actual pressure uh, in his face. I don't think we'll be able to run inside because the offensive line is getting no push. And I don't think we can run outside because we know that these linebackers have sideline and sideline speed. Um, if the Notre Dame's linebackers are missing run fits and, and the defensive tackles can't get pushed, I could see DeAndre Swift ev easily averaging like eight, part, eight yards per carry and Georgia pretty much scores at will. Now... What's the worst case scenario here based on all of those things that I said? I don't think this, this is not my prediction, but it's realistic. A realistic potential outcome in this game would be something like 56-0 Georgia. That they just run the ball at will, they just casually score two touchdowns per quarter, and Notre Dame is completely unable to move the ball due to a combination of the environment and what we've seen from this offense so far. So now with that doom and gloom, how can Notre Dame expect to compete? What needs to go right for the Irish to have a chance in this game? Number one, Ian Book needs to be absolutely great. We've seen it before. We haven't seen it so much lately, but we've seen it before. What he did against Wake Forest in his first start last season. Uh, the way that he played against Syracuse last year. Uh, gutsy performance against Northwestern. Uh, certainly some really good performances performances from Ian Book last year. Going to need another one uh, in this game. And his, his number one target, Chase Claypool, needs to be the individual best player on the field. I've really liked what I've seen from Claypool this year. He, he's looking a lot like Michael Floyd out there, um, and he's going to need to continue to be that, both going up and, and catching contested balls, but also with the ball in his hands after the catch in open space, he needs to turn, you know, a 12-yard gain into maybe a 40-yard gain by making a guy miss and using his speed. Um, this sounds crazy, and I know that it's no team that's ever won a game has ever done this. I just don't see any value in running between the tackles if you're Notre Dame. 
I think that Ian Book should be throwing the ball about 50 times in this game, and I think any runs should just be misdirections outside the tackle, uh, jet sweeps, things like that. I just don't see Notre Dame ever gaining more than like two yards uh, on a run between the tackle. And you can say, okay, you need to keep the defense honest. I don't know what you're keeping them honest on. They're not going to, it's not like they're going to load the box to stop you from getting two yards on a run up the middle. So I would be throwing the ball a lot, and that ties into Ian Book being great and Chase Claypool being the best players on the field. Defensively, the defensive backs need to be perfect in one-on-one coverage. They're, I have to assume they're going to be asked to be on islands against these receivers. If there's one, and I'm doing finger air quotes here, weakness of Georgia right now, it's probably their pass catchers. So can we ask our, our strong secondary, uh, and that, that includes freshman Kyle Hamilton, who's going into a pretty tough environment uh, and, and possibly extra nerves given, given that it's in his home state of Georgia. Can this secondary play in one-on-one coverage and make plays, avoid penalties, deflect passes, maybe come up with some interceptions? Can they do that? Because I think they're going to be asked to. Because we we just can't afford to put linebackers in coverage. Uh, we're going to need all hands on deck to stop the run. Now, what can help the de- defensive backs in that one-on-one coverage? That would be the D-line creating consistent pressure. I've talked about the defensive ends. In the preview, I said they were probably the best grouping in the entire country. I still, I'm not, I'm not backing off that just yet. Jake Fromm, despite being by far the best quarterback that Notre Dame will have faced so far this year, he's also the least mobile. He's not going to run. So perhaps, perhaps the fact that he's not a mobile quarterback and will be doing three, five, seven-step drops, that allows these defensive ends to pin their ears back and go after the quarterback in a way that they really can't when there's a chance that if, if, if he gets out of the pocket and they lose contain, it could be a long run for the quarterback. So that is one possibility of where Notre Dame could possibly step up. The combination of the defensive ends applying pressure and then those defensive backs playing great one-on-one coverage. And I don't know, if if I look at a best-case scenario, Notre Dame has to win the turnover battle probably by like two or three. Uh, if, all that, if all that happens and, and Ian Book looks great, here's the hot take. Notre Dame can win the game. They can win the game. This is rare for me because I I was thinking back, this is the first time I am going to a game that I expect Notre Dame to lose since 2012 Oklahoma. Granted, that worked out pretty okay for the Irish uh, in that one. Really all started uh, by, uh, on the first drive when Oklahoma was moving the ball pretty easily, a bad snap uh, in the shotgun recovered by Notre Dame, and, and that turned all the momentum right there. We need that kind of play to turn momentum against Georgia. That being said, my prediction for this game, and I'm, I'm afraid that this is generous, I'm going to say 38-21 to 21 Georgia. I don't think that it's ever particularly close, but I also don't think it's some embarrassing performance by Notre Dame. I think you're going to look at this saying, yeah, Georgia's one of the three best teams in the country, and Notre Dame is not that. Uh, and it's not going to, you know, if, if that's the kind of game we get, it's not going to change my opinion very much. And that's sort of where we are with this Notre Dame program. Of, of course, Paul Feinbaum and 
idiots like that are, are just going to say, okay, you know, they, they're incapable of, of ever playing at this level. Whatever. Stupid people are going to say stupid things. You don't need to worry about it. Notre Dame can lose this game and still go on to have a great season. From what I've seen so far, I would say anything from 8-4 and four to 11-1 and one is certainly on the table. But there's no reason that after losing this game, Notre Dame can't go out and win every game the rest of the year. I don't know if they will, but there's certainly still a great season to be had. And that's just a great thing about where the program is. I think back to, say, like 2012. And at that time, like every game I thought was like a referendum on my worth as like a sports fan. And setting aside the years of therapy that it would probably take to get to the bottom of that statement, it's just a nice place to be where the program, you know, they can they can lose to a better team and just still go on and continue their season and not worry about it and have a great year. This, this program is in such a better spot than it was two, five, eight, however many years ago you want to go back. I don't know. It's, it's weird to go into a game without the life-and-death feeling that, that college football usually carries with it. I'll certainly, you know, if we're close in the fourth quarter and, and come out with a loss, it's going to feel like a kick in the teeth. There's no doubt about it. I've had no shortage of those kinds of experiences. Um, but, I, you know, I just think uh, my message to Notre Dame fans is, is enjoy the game. I hope we win. I really don't think we're going to. And just don't listen to the idiots on Sunday. That's just about... Uh, that's just about all I can say. Uh, so with that, I think that's about all I have for you. Uh, I am going to get some sleep and hopefully feel better uh, in the morning because I need to bring uh, I need to be 100% heading down to to Athens. I hope everyone has a great weekend. Enjoy the college football slate. And I'll talk to you next week. That concludes the Scoop and Score podcast. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points and may God have mercy on your soul.